every situation. Lord, may we have the life that is your life. Somebody said, Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about what remains sustains. What remains sustains. I had another title called Mary Martyrs, but I didn't think many people would want to show up for that one. But uh, what remains sustains. We're in a series through the book of Acts, and we're praying that God just helps us to realign ourselves uh, to what the church really is supposed to be in these last days. In 1964, communist Romania, there were 12 students. They stood along with their pastor along a fence and on the other side of this large ditch. And beyond that ditch was a fence and a man-made cave. And a large lion paced back and forth in that cave opening. Their pastor said, Your forefathers were thrown to such wild beasts for their faith. And I want you to know that you too will have to suffer. You may not be thrown before the lions, but you will have to suffer before the hands of men, which may be worse than these animals. And I want you to decide here and now whether you wish to pledge your allegiance to Christ. The students looked at each other, and their pastor, his name was Richard Wormbrand. Richard had spent 14 years in communist prison with no lights or windows. He had been beaten and tortured. His feet were filleted open with beatings every night for his work in the underground church. This was the pastor's last week in Romania because he'd just been ransomed out of prison and a missions agency was going to try to get him to escape out of the country. And he was speaking there that day to his Sunday school class. He didn't know what they would suffer under the communists, but he wanted to bring them to the zoo that day to see the lions and plant to them a faith that would survive even the hardest of trials. And their students understood what their pastor and Sunday school teacher was trying to get them to understand and they looked at each other with tears in their eyes and answered all of them resolutely we pledge our allegiance to Christ you know we all in America we want the good life what is the good life some people believe it comes from your dreams being fulfilled of a nice car and a nice house or a loving spouse, maybe a well-paying job, your kids to have accolades and be successful and be good sports players and cheerleaders, go to college and make good grades and get a degree and that you'd see them be successful, maybe to have plenty of vacations throughout your life with great memories and have a nice retirement package waiting for you when that season of life is come. And while those are good things, they are not the good life. Because the good life can never be achieved by anything I can do. Because the Bible says in Romans that there is nothing good in me that is in my sinful nature. That inside of me is this absence of goodness. That I can never produce anything that lasting love or lasting peace or lasting joy. Because all the things that I could do eventually will fade. Anything I put my hand to eventually will fade. I will find myself horribly insufficient for anything good to last. And so our flesh is cursed by sin. I can't find true love or true joy or true peace through anything I can do in this life. So I can't alone reach that good life. You see, the good life is actually the God life. And that God life, where does it come from? It comes from giving up your old life and finding a new life. And that new life is the life of Jesus Christ. That new life is his life, 
And the Bible says that his life, Galatians says, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, even self-control. There's no law, there's no religious works, Paul says, could ever get you to get those things. Those things are supernatural, heavenly gifts that come from the good life, which is the God life that's in Jesus Christ. Those things never fade away. And the Bible promises that every believer receives those heavenly good things. They receive them, that they're there, promised, and uh, guaranteed by the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says that the kingdom of God that he's given to you is righteousness, peace, and what? Joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy in the Holy Spirit. That there's something unshakable about this life. There's something abundant about this life. There's something about this life that God gives you that in the midst of any kind of horrible circumstance or tribulation, the good life is always there because it's the God life living on the inside of you. Somebody say amen. amen. It's the God life. So I've been really thinking about this message a lot this week and just asking myself this question. Do I have the good life? And do I have the God life? For instance, if I find myself not living in the abundance of God's joy, what do I realize about myself in that day? That I'm living more that day in the old life instead of the new life. Because if I believe by faith, this new life is promised through Jesus Christ, and I believe he's risen from the dead, and that new life is given to me, that there's nothing separating me from love and joy and peace and patience. So what happens if a day that I go to a McDonald's drive-thru and they mess up my order and I lose my sanctification, then I realize probably that day I'm probably not living so much in the God life as I am in the old life. If I get stressed and anxious and fearful about the day, if I am losing my patience, if I'm, if I'm not as joyful as I ought to be, what am I telling myself? What, are, what am I recognizing? Heath, I've been living in the old life because the new life is the good life and the new life is the God life. And that's where God's abundance is coming and available to you and to me. How do these people stand before lions and say, we will take Jesus, and they stand there with vitality of being beaten for 14 years and say, this life is worth it. This life is something that's risking it all. Everything that he's purchased for you, it's going to be greater than anything they can do to you. Do I have that life? Because if I can lose it at McDonald's drive through I don't know that I'm living in that life, yeah. right? Come on, let's just be honest. If I can lose it through petty arguments in our families, if I can lose it through different circumstances where I've just been stressed at work and then me and my spouse begin to fight over dinner and I lose it, am I living in it? Am I living in the life abundant Jesus has paid the price for me to receive? Do I have that life? You know, 2 Corinthians Chapter four, verse eight says, we are afflicted in every way. This is Paul. Man, I'm afflicted in every way, but I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not despairing. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down, but not destroyed. In verse 10, he says, I'm, how is this possible? I'm always carrying about, he says, in the body of the dying. Somebody say dying. I'm always carrying about in the body of the dying Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. He says, for we who are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in this mortal dying flesh. What is he saying? That there's this Christian life is about living and dying. And sometimes to live, you actually have to die. 
Sometimes to truly live, you actually have to die. And perhaps today, let, let me just ask ourselves this question. Perhaps the reason I'm not satisfied in Jesus and Christ alone, perhaps the reason that I'm not filled with abundant joy that's unspeakable and full of glory, perhaps the reason I'm actually not happy right now in this season is that I haven't died enough so that he could live enough in me. I want to die more so that he can live more. Because I want to receive that which he's beheld and have already purchased for me. I want to gain that thing that he's already given me, living the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Have I found a life worth dying for? And how good is that God life that's living on the inside of you? And is what's going on on the inside of you so much greater than anything that could ever go on on the outside of you. Say it again. Is what's on the inside of you so much greater, so much, let's say it in a non-right term, so much gooder, right, than no matter how bad things around you could be, there's something on the inside that's so much greater because Christ is inside of you. Look with me in Acts. What remains sustains. Let's look at another passage here. I want to tell you about the unstoppable gospel. I'm going to give you the background, and I'm going to jump into Acts chapter 5, verse 20, where you are. So the high priests and Sadducees, this high council called the Sanhedrin, had heard that Peter and John had just healed a beggar in the temple and really kind of started a big prayer meeting. And they were jealous about it, and they didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, this high council is the very one that killed Jesus, who said that he rose Lazarus from the dead. They didn't believe it, and they saw a mutiny. So they killed Jesus. And then they even had Peter and John arrested for healing this man, but they couldn't touch him. So they threatened them to stop speaking about the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, and preaching the name of Jesus. Well, they threatened them and didn't stop them. Man, they went to the prayer meeting that night like you should be at a prayer meeting regularly in your church. They went to a prayer meeting and the house was shaken. The Holy Spirit came down and the Bible says they went out speaking the word of God even with more boldness. God was supernaturally working. Healings and miracles began to take place and now they heard about it again. So the, where we are in Acts, it says that this high council, this high priests, this Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the, all of the apostles again this time. And they put them in prison publicly. And they put them there and they begin to think about what they're going to do the next day with them. But that night, the Bible says, an angel of the Lord opened their cell. And here's what he said in chapter 5, verse 20. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the whole message of this life. I want you to come back to that. This life. So what happened? The jailers arrived. Man, the cell's locked. Nobody's in there. What's going on? What's happening? They come and they find them preaching again in the temple courts about this life, this resurrection, this life in Christ. And, and so the jailers this time, they arrest them, but they don't do it with handcuffs and forcibly. They're like, I don't know about these guys. So they walk them back into the high court. And here's these Pharisees and Sadducees and this high council. It would be like Congress, okay? Both Republican and Democrat, all right? And the high priest would be the president. And they're there and they stand before their Congress, their national Congress, their parliament. And these guys begin to rebuke them and say, we told you, stop speaking about this name. And then look what Peter says to them. They begin to rebuke them about this name. You're telling us we're guilty of this man's blood. Note they didn't ask them how they got out of prison. They didn't believe in angels either. 
Uh, Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. Verse 29. And then Peter, what does he do? He begins to preach, man, the Holy Spirit. He begins to preach the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He begins to preach repentance and remission of sin. He just lays out there that the Holy Spirit is available for every person today to receive him by faith. And he just lays out the best Pentecostal message you've ever heard in your life. There before all of parliament, before the, all the high council. And he knows... He's about to probably die. This is how they killed Jesus. This is the same people that killed Jesus. They had told him to stop once, and now they're going to tell him to stop twice. And here they are. Their rage comes on these men, and they're about to grab them and have them stoned. And this other guy, this Pharisee, a national or respected leader, a lawyer, uh, Gamaliel, he was actually Paul's mentor uh, when Paul was not serving Jesus. He stood up, and he began to tell them, guys, let me give you some wisdom before we do something we might regret Here's what he says. Other movements have come and gone, but they all came to nothing because they were just works of men. And if it's man, it'll die off. But look what he says. Verse 38, let's all start together. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it's of God, somebody say amen. If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. So they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released him. Verse 41, this is our, our key verse for today. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Somebody say rejoicing. Rejoicing. They had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. And look what, look what they did. Verse 42, and every day, every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that wonderful, beautiful name, the name of Jesus as the Christ. Man, what kind of zeal and grit do you have to have to stand before Parliament, before Congress, before this high council. And they told you to be quiet once and arrest you. And the, the Bible says that they were flogged. If you look it up, it's not the Roman scourging that Jesus had with the, the, the uh, cat of nine tails, but it was a rod or a whip. And each of these 12 men were beaten 39 times, both back and front all 12 of them, 39 times with a rod, 39 times. Can you imagine? Front, on back of you. And they left that place rejoicing, rejoicing. They were counted worthy to be beaten 39 times front and back. And they kept on preaching Jesus. Now, I asked myself this question all week. Do I have what these guys had? Do I, not that I am going to ever, or you or I may or may not ever stand in the place that they did and suffer this kind of beating, but do I nevertheless have the same Jesus that they have? Do I have the same life that they have? And what is it that they had that maybe that we're missing in the American church today? And how do I get it if I don't have it? You see, the word witness, as they begin to witness of Jesus, the word Luke will use and much of the New Testament will use is the word marturo. And it actually means or says martyr. You can translate it either way. Witness means martyr. They all martyred or witnessed for Jesus Christ. They were all witnesses. They were all martyrs, people who stood as a testament, a, a, an evidence 
And this was used as a major theme of Scripture, that it was counted worthy to suffer. You look through all the New Testament. It was suffering is a motif that we want to ignore. But suffering is a premise. It's one of the major themes of the New Testament church is suffering. Something we don't hear very much about in the American church. Look at these guys. At the end of this life, James was beheaded. Philip was crucified and stoned. Matthew was pinned to the ground and then beheaded. James II, he was thrown off a cliff and then stoned. Andrew hung for three days on a cross. Mark was dragged through the streets until dead. Peter was tortured and then crucified upside down in Rome. Nathaniel, Nathaniel was filleted his skin alive and then crucified, if that wasn't bad enough. Thomas was tortured, thrown into an oven, and then struck through with spears. Simon, he was sawn in half. And each of these men said, Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Can you imagine? What do you have to have on the inside of you that makes that evil not overcome the good that's inside of you? What life has to be on side of you that no matter what death comes around you, that life is more abundant. That life is greater. Living and dying. Let me tell you about the living. What is this message? The angel said, go preach this message of life. This is the key. What is this life? I think about like a pinata. These men were beaten and only the candy fell out, right? It's like, man, everything they got beaten, only good things. Just beat them, good things. Beat them, good things. Beat them. It's like, God, do I have that in my life? Do I have a life that no matter how many beatings emotionally, spiritually, relationally, or my patience and things and circumstances in my life could come, that no matter how many beatings that I'm taking, how many wicks or whips or licks I'm taking, that only good things are falling out of me? Because it matters what's on the inside, you see? What's on the inside came out. What's on the inside came out. And as they, their pain of their flesh was stripped away, they had only remaining something that sustained. Come on. Only what sustained remained. After everything is stripped away, there was something still sustaining that was standing in those men that day. And it was joy unspeakable and full of glory. There was something remaining that sustained these men, no matter how much was stripped away, and they were filled with this good life, with this God life, the life of Jesus Christ. These guys saw this life. John would write, say, this, this life that we saw, this life was the life of men. It was the light, and it was the life of men. This, this life we saw in him was abundant. It was something that, that we wanted to remain in. And, and the Bible says they began to seek this kingdom, and this new life was breathed on them when Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit in John 20. And then they were immersed in this life on Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and it filled them with power to go be martyrs, witnesses for him. And then they were continually immersed, Luke says filled, continually immersed in this life, even shaking the houses where they we're praying because this life was something heavenly and supernatural. Man, you can come to church and get all kinds of religion, but you better get life. Life. This life began to move through this church because it was the life of Christ in them. I love what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you'll also be re revealed with him in glory. What is Paul saying? Your life is hidden with God and Christ is your life. That thing on the inside of you it needs to be Christ's life. 
Christ's life is something supernatural. It's abundant. It's God's life. The same God who spoke life into existence, that same God who breathed breath into Adam, that same God is now breathing into you the Holy Spirit. And God said, let there be life. And there was life and it was good. And so when God breathes on you and gives you the Holy Spirit, it's abundant life. Even the darkness can't take that life away. It's something heavenly and something that no man can describe to you. It's something you feel on the inside because you know you've met God and God's on the inside of you. Man, it's life. And do I have that life? When, I would say, when we would say to someone, man, her kids are her life. What does that mean? Or if I said, man, he lives for hunting or fishing. Or man, he, that, that, that family lives for baseball. We know what we mean. That means that we have devoted our time our resources, we've devoted things to that thing that we're most passionate about. And someone can look at that and then right off the bat they can say, man, they live for their kids. Why? Because it's evident in them what they live for. When Paul says to me, Christ who is your life, my question, I have been on that verse all week, Heath, is it evident what you're living for? Man, they live for baseball. What if they live for Jesus? How would that look different? Not that you can't do both, but living for something is evident because it's something inside of you. It's something driving you. You'll spend your money on that thing. You'll spend your time on that thing. That thing will drive you to get up early in the morning and get out there to a deer stand at 3 a.m. even if you don't shoot anything for 12 hours. But you'll do it again the next day because hunting's your life, right? But what if Jesus is my life? What if I live for him more than anything else? Because at the end of the day, when everything is stripped away, we'll find out what remains in you. The world will see what remains in you. They can tell what you live for, and they can tell what I live for. And this circumstances come in our life, and whether you see it coming in the national uh, uh, politics of our day, if you see it coming, uh, I see it coming down the pipe today, we're about to see what we live for. And we're seeing even through COVID, we're seeing it through situations. And when things come in your life, whether it be a relational issue or a marriage issue or a financial issue, man, God is about to see what you live for. What's your life? Where's that life, that abundant life? Look within yourself and say, do I have this abundant, abiding life in Christ? And do I have a life so pure and so true that no person or no thing could ever overtake it? And this life is greater than any situation. It's greater than any circumstance. This life is going to settle my fears. It's going to calm my frustrations. And this life, even on my worst day, if I'm beaten 39 times front and back, I'm going to leave with joy. I'm going to leave with joy. That's how good. And here's the deal. Do you believe knowing Jesus is that good? That's a question you have to answer yourself. Have I tasted of something so good that have I been beaten 39 times front and back that I would walk away with joy? Have I met Jesus to that degree? You see, how do they get to that place? The next thing I'd say is it's the dying part. You see, we can grow bored with the Christian life. We can lose the awe of Christ's love and his power. But this new life is often hidden by our old life. I think, I think about that time when you see these TV shows where people lose these hundreds and hundreds of pounds in a short period of time. You, ever, you notice that they are like mentally, fit, not just physically, 
joyful and, and have a happiness about them. But emotionally and mentally, when you lose all that weight, it's like you're a whole new person. Why? Because there's this healthier, happier you on the inside. All this old stuff stripped away. You feel lighter. You feel excited. You want to go do things because all this stuff that was weighing you down is stripped away. It's like you're a whole new person. These, if you watch these shows, they say the same is true for the Christian. What's on the inside of you purchased by God is often weighted down by the cares and affections of this world and by the things of the flesh. But as you begin to strip off all that weight that easily entangles you and you find something that Christ has purchased for you, on the inside, all that is there is a healthier, happier you. It's already there. It's provided for in Christ. But sometimes, maybe perhaps this week as I've lost my joy or my peace or my patience, I'm finding I've put on heavy things. And my job in this world is to strip off those things. Let me give you some examples. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, when it's stripped away, they find a better you, something that Christ has put in you. Crucified with Christ, Paul says. Jesus promised that there would be this blessing for those who are persecuted. Why? Because they would begin to find him. You see, Paul said in Colossians 1.24, he says, I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that I can continue for his body, the church. I'm participating in this body, in this body of suffering with Christ. You see, I think about that moment. I want you to just take a moment. Just imagine with me. You see Christ's body on the cross. It's bleeding, it's bruised, it's beaten, it's nailed there. And the Bible says that you, you are his body. And we like to think of it in the now. Think about it in that moment. You are his body. He's the head, you're the body, the Bible says. And Paul says, I count worthy the sufferings that I might know him, that I might fellowship with his sufferings, if by any means, that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says that I'm crucified with Christ no longer as I who live, but Christ who lives within me. James talks about the testing of your trials and, and suffering produces endurance and patience that I might receive a reward. You see, the suffering and the shame of Christ that day, of his body, produced for us this glory, this coming of the Spirit, this new life. And long before Christ ever died on the cross, he had died to his flesh. And as I participate in his body, I have to participate in his sufferings. I have to participate in that shame that he endured. There's no coming to Christ and being a part of his body without being that very body that died on the cross that day. It means leaving beside this earthly, evil, sinful life and going to that cross with him and dying with him and identifying with that body that was broken and bruised for us, that was shamed for us, that was pierced for us, that was crucified and nailed to a cross for us. So that's why Jesus says, unless a man takes up his cross daily and follows me, he is not worthy of me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me was his message to his disciples. And to go to Christ and want that new life and want that good life and want that abundant life means I first have to say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your body. And he says, let's go to the lions. Let's go to the lions. Let's go to that place like that man took his Sunday school class and say, what is worth it to you? What would you endure for? I've endured this for your sake. What would you endure for my sake? 
Would you endure that McDonald's drive-thru for my sake? Come on. Would you endure shame of your family? Would you endure uh, just times of testing and seasons where it doesn't feel like everything's always going good in your life? Would you endure this mockery of the world when they see you standing for morality? Would you endure all these things? Would you give up TV time to pray with me? Would you take these times to study my word and be with me? What are you willing to count the cost for? for this new life because I have paid the price for you. And if you are my body, you have to die with me. You have to go to that place with me if you want that new life. You see, Paul says, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. It's a deep thing, and it takes some time, I will be honest, as a Christian to really figure this out in your life. Jesus began to preach this from the very beginning of his church. Church, there is a stripping of way. If I find myself simply this, if I find myself weighted down by the flesh, I realize I'm going to lack in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And if you are here today and you find yourself lacking in the joy of the Holy Spirit, it's not that you're not saved. It's that you have been weighted down with so much of this world and Christ is calling you to strip away all those things. You know, in the Redwoods, there's this big debate about whether they should have forest fires in California and I won't get into all that, but you know that science proves that forest fires are good for the environment. It's something that God made. In fact, the reason all those Redwoods are so tall and so strong today is that many thousands of years, those fires have killed the undergrowth and allowed those trees to grow bigger. And in fact, those, uh, the uh, bark of those trees is hardened by that fire. It's as if everything else stripped away and only what was strong remained. And the thing is for us too, sometimes there's things that I want to do in my life to strip away those things getting up early to pray or taking time every week to read my Bible, to strip away what I could be otherwise doing to please the flesh so that I can focus on increasing the spirit man on the inside of me by, by stripping willingly things away. I don't have to wait to be beaten 39 times. You understand what I'm saying here? I don't have to go to persecution to be beaten and, and do these things to find out if I actually have the joy of the Holy Spirit. You and I can find out this week, tomorrow, do you have the joy of the Holy Spirit? Do you have an abundant life in Christ? And if you don't, then you can accept Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And if you have done that, and you're still not living in something that, that passes understanding, and something that is abiding and remaining in, in such sweet uh, intimacy, that when you go to bed at night, there's a sense of peace and security. When you wake up in the morning, there's a sense of hope for a, a brighter future that you're not worried about the economy and you're not, you're not troubled by people don't like you or people don't, you don't have to live up to somebody's expectations or maybe you're living with shame of things that happened way back when. You're not gonna live with all that stuff because you have this abiding. You have this hidden life that's in Jesus that's secure, that remains, that's steadfast, that's immovable, always abounding in the Lord, the Bible says. It's a secret life. It's a hidden life. And it's a life rarely found outside the prayer closet. Something many people don't have anymore. Do you want the good life? You and I can make the choice today to strip aside 
our old self and put on this new self. And I close with this. I look at the Revelation chapter 3 and Jesus says to one of the churches, he says, you've been known for living things, but your living things really are dead things. I see you, you look like you're alive, but you're really dead. And he says, strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen the things that remain. We want to help you as a church family to encourage you, to exhort you in this last day, just be real honest, to strip off all this junk and be the most uh, zealous, full of vitality, full of supernatural health, full of supernatural zeal and fervor, something that no matter what comes your way, you're not leaning on a pastor to help you uh, just to survive that moment, but you have something hidden in Christ that is gonna survive every test and trial, something that anything come your way. There is a good life that is hidden in your life in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me all across this room? Kim, can you just come play something just uh, quietly? Are you hiding in the abiding life of Christ? They left that place rejoicing, worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Church, if we can't give up TV time to pray, we'll never make it to that day. If we can't give up time to study our Bibles and read, if we can't give up time to go to church and, and be with one another and exhort one another in the faith, we're, we, we've got to do some stripping away in America. One of the reasons we're not happy, one of the reasons we're overwhelmed is not because Christ hasn't given you what you need. He's already given it. He's promised it. It's given and paid for, the abundant life. If you want to live in that life, it takes a stripping away so that only what remains will sustain. A stripping away. Strengthen what remains. How do you do that? Number one, it's repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And He will give you the Holy Spirit to make you born again. You'll be alive on the inside with Christ, Paul says. And you'll find that life, that new life. That's step number one. Step number two is church. It's a continual dying to self. If you're here today and you're not living in either one of those places, you can do that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you need to experience that abundant life, you can do it right there at your seat or right here at an altar. And it's simply just giving up control of your life and giving your life over to His authority and believing and confessing on Him by faith that He is who He says He is. It's that simple. It's not a prayer that you can pray that I pray. It's something you do with your heart and you'll begin to confess with your life and your mouth. Jesus is going to do something supernatural in you as you just begin to give yourself in personal surrender to Him.